Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Evie Hemphill. Cancer in its many forms has plagued humanity for millennia, and it's still taking a terrible toll in the 21st century. The hope that scientists will eventually find a cure can feel like a long shot, and yet maybe a cure is not a matter of someday anymore, but right around the corner. Washington University professor and vice chancellor Michael Kinch makes the case that we are on the cusp of a breakthrough for a cure in his latest book. Titled The End of the Beginning, Cancer, Immunity, and the Future of a Cure, the volume was released in April, and it offers readers a history of cancer research and treatment, as well as a view toward what's ahead in this rapidly evolving field. Author Michael Kinch now joins me in studio to discuss it. Professor Kinch, thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks for the opportunity to come and talk about the book. You draw the title of your book, The End of the Beginning, from a wartime speech by former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Why did you make that choice? Well, I think it's because we're starting to see some rather miraculous cures amongst individuals, many of them very high profile. And it's both exciting to see, but it's creating potentially an expectation that we are on the verge of curing and ridding humanity of, of cancer. And I think we're still not quite there, and hence the title of the book. I think we're learning the basics that say that we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. Well, I was really fascinated by your book in spite of my personal lack of scientific knowledge, and it was full of surprises, I found. One of those um, all the way through for me was how seemingly unrelated aspects of medicine or biology would time and again suddenly kind of connect in a really meaningful way for our understanding. I'm curious if you were intentionally trying to um, trying for those moments for the reader or if it's more a natural reflection of your own journey trying to constantly better understand something like cancer. No, you know, it's actually the way that things unfolded. And that's what's really fun about the sorts of research that I've been doing and the kind of books I've been writing, which is that you sort of start with the end point. Where are we now? Which is nearing, hopefully, the end of cancer. And then asking, how did we get there? And it's amazing the twists and turns and perhaps most importantly, the personalities of the individuals involved. And that's what makes it really fun and human. You start off the book with some personal history relating to your own career in this field. And there's one particular anecdote where you're attending a presentation and you're so moved by what you learned that you kind of jump out of your seat. <laughs> Can you talk about why that was such a pivotal moment for you? Yeah, it really was. Um, so I was beginning my career as a cancer researcher. I was young and cocky and figured I pretty much knew everything about the disease. And I heard a presentation about prostate cancer, which basically said that, and I'm going to shorten it dramatically, by the time that a male reaches 60 years of age, there's roughly a 100% chance that they have prostate cancer. Not only prostate cancer, but highly aggressive, invasive prostate cancer. And that made me realize, wow, um, the cancer prevalence, there are a whole number of implications of this. First of all, cancer is far more widespread than we realize. And by the way, that 100% likely doesn't even know, or most of those people don't even know they have prostate cancer. And in women, I would guess the same is probably true of breast cancer. But the other implication of this is when do you treat cancer and when are you trying to prevent cancer? Is a 30-year-old that has a disease they may never feel or impact their life, should they be treated for cancer with treatments that are historically very aggressive? So there are a lot of implications built into this. This kind of relates to that. One of the lines I underlined in your book is as follows, quote, despite all the body's safeguards to prevent cancer, the disease nonetheless relentlessly arises, perhaps in each of us and on a daily basis, on, unquote. You describe this as a hypothesis, and I'd love it if you could expand on what exactly that suggests. So the idea is, and there are a number of folks that hold this idea, and I'm in, I'm, I was trained as an immunologist, and I'm one of them, and that idea is that cancer arises relatively frequently at the cellular level. So we're made up of trillions of cells, 
and probably on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis, a tumor cell arises. And thankfully, we have a functional immune system that can identify it as being something that shouldn't be there and remove it. And so the idea is that when cancer breaks through, it's overwhelmed that capacity of the immune system. And that's really the whole basis of the book. Yeah, that, that was definitely a surprise for me. Another thing that um, really surprised me was learning that fast-growing cancers are often simpler to treat than more slowly-growing cancers. Do you find that a lot of people are surprised to hear that? And are there any common misconceptions about cancer that you especially hope to challenge? Yeah, there are many misconceptions. And I think we as a society are frequently confused by cancer. And it's a scary subject. We usually don't think about it until such time as either we, either we or someone we love is suffering from the disease. Um, it's frequently um, considered to be a disease of rapid growth. And that's not always necessarily the case. Sometimes it's a disease of the cells that are supposed to die in the body, and we have lots of cells that die every day, and that's a good, healthy thing. Sometimes those cells don't die, and cancer arises there. Other times it has, for example, infectious, uh, an infectious nature, uh, probably the most famous example being the, hepati- the hepatitis B virus or the um, HPV virus, which causes cervical cancer. And that's actually probably the biggest surprise for me as, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 50s, that cancer until a few decades ago was considered sort of a scourge, and it had sort of an infectious view. And people, if you had cancer in your family, you wouldn't talk about it. And that was a big surprise because I think our society's come a long way since then. I was surprised somewhere, I think it says something like nine out of 10 doctors in the 60s, correct me if I'm mangling this, um, would not tell patients sometimes that they had cancer even. Yes. I mean, it was very frequent that you would tell the family members and it would be a big secret um, from the patient because the idea was, well, we're worried that the patient might commit suicide if they find out they have cancer. That's how dreaded of a disease that it was. Mm-hmm. Now we're reaching a point, hence the title of the book, that it's becoming a very treatable disease. And hopefully it will turn into a chronic condition that we have to manage rather than a death sentence. In terms of the history of cancer treatment itself, um, I came away from your book with a sense that, very broadly speaking, there are treatments that aim to directly kill the cancer cells and often kill lots of normal cells in the process. And then there are treatments that focus on making the most of the body's natural defenses and immune system to outsmart the cancer cells. And then there's a whole other frontier of things like genome editing and personalized therapy. Is that generally what we're looking at? (laughs) It's generally what we're looking at. We started off the earliest cancer cures, which have really only been around since the days after the Second World War. Those were pretty harsh therapies. And some of those are still used today because they're effective. But they essentially kill fast-growing cells. Um, As we're all aware, or if those who've seen folks be treated, sometimes the fast-growing cells are in your intestine or stomach or your hair follicles, and so you get these these pretty bad side effects. Um, The new model that, or the new uh, approach being taken to treat cancer is this idea of stimulating the immune system. And the results we're starting to get are very, very promising. And so I think that with the coming of the, um, the beginning of the end of cancer, we're going to become, first of all, more talented in our ability to target the immune system, but we're also going to be more selective in being able to kill the cancer cell without harming the normal tissues around it. And so the side effects should go down. Well, in revisiting all that history, you help the reader meet all these interesting physicians and patients and scientists who have contributed to our collective knowledge of cancer and other maladies over the course of history. Um, Not only was I frequently in awe of their persistence and bravery and all of that, but you really delved into their personal stories and um, 
that actually somehow as a reader made me more accepting of what now seem in some cases like really wild or crude attempts to heal someone. Um, And then to pair that with the more cutting edge uh, um, trials and things lately, I guess it just seems so clear throughout the book that people have generally really tried their absolute best, however unsuccessfully or even catastrophically at times, um, to to make change here. Um, Is that what you found just in the course of your research? Just uh, what was it like to encounter those stories as you were pulling this together? Well, there were a few things that were pretty amazing. The motivations uh, for the people are very interesting. Um, And I, I relate some stories, for example, about how this current idea of targeting the immune system to be able to wipe out cancer is actually more than 100 years old. And um, the individual who came up with this idea was actually treating the best friend of John D. Rockefeller Jr. and was motivated by the fact that a friend, his friend, and this occurred when he was getting ready to enter college, had died of the disease. And when the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, later Rockefeller Institute and Rockefeller University were created, a big Uh, emphasis of that institution was to target cancer. Um, Not only was the woman who died from that disease that that inspired the the creation of these organizations, not only was she affected, but her physician. So Rockefeller was her friend. A gentleman by the name of William Coley was her physician. And Coley was motivated, and you could almost say obsessed, actually I would certainly say obsessed, with trying to figure out how might he have saved this woman. And that led to what were known as cholitoxins. And the cholitoxins, you're right, were this very crude idea of causing what essentially is a massive infection. And sometimes the patient died from the toxins, and other times they worked really well. And we sort of forgot about that over the past century and then rediscovered it about 20, 30 years ago. How important do you think uh, revisiting these stories of the past is to motivating folks deeply embedded in this field right now trying to find the way forward? I think in general, we need to make these kind of stories available and approachable to the public. A great example of that is my last book, which was on vaccines. Um, Vaccines were going through, unfortunately, an unnecessary crisis where misunderstanding of science has led people to believe that, for example, the MMR vaccine causes autism, which is Mm -hmm. utterly false. Um, Likewise, and that was part of the reason for writing the book, these cancer cures are A, not universally, we're not seeing cures across the board, and B, there will be some side effects and some damage that will occur from them if people go into those sorts of therapies realizing that it's not a guaranteed cure and that there will be or could be side effects, that's far better than if someone walks in naively thinking this is all just going to be over and done and they'll never have to deal with it again. My guest is Michael Kinch, author of the newly released book, The End of the Beginning, Cancer, Immunity, and the Future of a Cure. He is currently a professor and vice chancellor at Washington University in St. Louis, and previously he founded an oncology program at a biotechnology company. Professor Kinch, I don't know how common it is for a trained academic um, like yourself to spend time in university labs and then make the switch to the private sector, and then in your case, eventually make your way back to academia. Um, That rather unexpected journey comes through in your book as well. And having seen both sides, per se, is there anything um, that frustrates you about one or the other? So my job, when people ask, what do I do, um, I oftentimes glibly answer, I'm a translator, uh, trying to talk with academics about how the private sector works and to try to talk with folks in the private sector about how academics work and what motivates them with the idea of getting the two of them to work together. 
And um, I would say the frustration is that in whether you're talking about individuals in the private sector or in academia, they're smart, motivated individuals who are either naive or suspicious of the activities of the others. And if we're going to come up with these new types of cures and continue to build upon that, we need to overcome that. Do you have an example of how you've gotten them to work together? You know, we've created incentives. And a big part of what I do at Washington University is to determine how do we both educate and incentivize academics to want to work with the private sector. And so we can offer cash prizes, but in reality what we're really offering are educational opportunities to make the academic become more familiar with how will a opportunity, let's say an opportunity for a new cure or, or treatment or diagnos- diagnostic for a disease, um, how does that opportunity going to be looked at by the private sector, by investors, and by companies? I, I, I really was struck by the moment. I, I don't want to spoil the book, but without giving too much away, there's a point where you're, you're working in the private sector, and I believe the company you're with decides not to go with a therapy that you're working on because the backpack, fanny pack thing that would be required of patients to wear for a couple of weeks was just considered unmarkable or unmarketable. Yes. <laughs> It was, we had a, a drug that basically the marketing people said, you'll never be able to sell this. Uh, and the clinicians and the scientists said, but this will save people's lives. And the reason why the marketing people thought it was impractical was that you'd have to walk around for a week or two with this, what they were calling a backpack. In reality, it was kind of more of a fanny pack. But this, what's known as a continuous infusion, where you're being given the drug 24-7 for a week or two it would save their lives. And um, in retrospect, it turns out our company took a pass on it, which I thought was a tremendous mistake. Another company picked it up and it's being marketed today. And so the, the story is good news, but again, it's these kind of misunderstandings amongst scientists, amongst people, even just in the private sector, the people that are involved in sales and marketing and other areas, we all need to have greater understanding of each other. Do you worry at all about purely economic matters, slowing advancements in cancer treatment and impeding the race for a cure? It's a big part of the book. And it's actually, I'm beginning a project now to start looking at this, which is that these new therapies that we're seeing for cancer, these new immune-based therapies are costing hundreds of thousands. And there is reason to believe we're probably soon going to be approaching millions of dollars per patient. And there is a point where economics has to come into and will come into uh, the decision making as to whether these drugs will be utilized, and uh, you know, we've when when we were looking at the Affordable Care Act and whether to pass pass that, there were discussions of death panels and and other sorts of things to scare the public. But the practicality is that if you have a million dollar therapy that will, if you have to invest a million dollars to buy one individual an extra few months of life, or immunize a hundred thousand kids, that's a choice that eventually the payers, the insurance companies, or the government might have to make. Hmm. This is also very much an international story with researchers making breakthroughs on various fronts in the fight against cancer in all parts of the world. In your experience, are we capitalizing on that and making the most of all this collaboration and all these resources as much as we could be? Yeah, I don't think science really knows borders all that much. Uh, Some of the therapies we talk about had their start in Israel. Um, and then came to the U.S., and in some cases started in the U.S. and went to other countries. And so that is one fortunate thing is that science is fundamental and it's quite literally universal. And so there has been a good collaboration amongst uh, scientists in different countries and even private sector companies in different countries. Well, at certain points in the book, I think 
wow, they figured that one out, you know, whatever specific um, cure or at least tool for combating cancer was being worked on, um, often in mice and then in humans in early trials. Um, But then soon enough, I'd feel kind of deflated because uh, it would get to, I guess, the marketplace or the healthcare world, and um, there would be only, say, a 30% success rate among patients. it just seems like such a roller coaster for patients and, and doctors, obviously, but also for researchers, I imagine. How do you navigate the ups and downs of feeling hopeful and then having setbacks and all that? Well, I think from a scientific standpoint, we sort of are raised with, we're trained with the idea that 90% of what you do will fail, um, abjectly, completely fail. Um, I think part of the, the rationale for writing this book was to convey that to the public. Now, what we're seeing with these miraculous new cures, uh, to to put this in perspective, metastatic melanoma uh, 15, 20 years ago was considered a death sentence. No one survived more than a few years, or very few did. Now, people are talking about cures. But the reality is we're getting cures for 20, maybe 30% of the population, but the other 70% are not helped. So that's part of why this is the end of the beginning, is to expand that up. And I think we have to retain that optimism because we are seeing cures in individuals who would have died um, 10, 15 years ago. Best example of that being President Jimmy Carter, which a few months ago became the oldest president in the United States, oldest man who ever was president. He was given 10 days to live before given one of these therapies, and he's still alive and kicking today. A number of the real-life characters in the book were inspired to either pursue or support cancer research um, because of personal experiences with the disease, including Rockefeller, who you mentioned, and also yourself. Um, Can you give our listeners a sense of what you observed as a young man um, in your own family and how that shaped your path? Absolutely. Well, I became a cancer researcher not coincidentally. Um, I had multiple family members pass away from the disease. And it turns out that, uh, to make a very long story short, there was a genetic mutation that was running through our family that was responsible for some of these diseases. And I went through a period of time, and I mentioned this in the very beginning of the book, where I had given a talk at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, and a few weeks later had returned to the exact same place. This time, there was a patient because it was unclear whether I had that genetic marker that would indicate that I was essentially destined to get uh, a type of colon cancer. And so it gives you a very different, humbling experience to be on the other side of the diagnosis. Yeah. What was the research and writing process like for this book? Um, Again, I have sort of an odd way of researching things. I'll I'll look at the punchline and say, here's where we are, and then I'll just keep asking the questions, why did we get here and who did it? And when you figure out who did it, then you ask, well, why did they do that? And so the researching was really, uh, again, knowing the endpoint in mind, um, I would just ask who were the individuals involved. And then when you, for example, this, there's a gentleman by the name of William Coley that's central to the story. Well, what was his motivation? And I didn't realize his motivation would be so interesting that it would end up crossing over with John D. Rockefeller and with the creation of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital and uh, a number of things. And that, that's what makes it really fun. Yeah, it was so fascinating, too, how sometimes there would be an outbreak of um, influenza, for instance, and uh, as horrible as all of that was, there would be lessons related to another part of of science or medicine. Absolutely. There have been been a handful of diseases that we as a society have faced, Western societies faced in the past maybe 200 years that have fundamentally restructured, I would argue, all of society. Um, Many people know about the plague, the Black Death. But when, when uh, historians look back on this period, for example, HIV-AIDS, 
um, has fundamentally retooled our understanding of the immune system and of science in general. You mentioned Jimmy Carter a moment ago. How much does presidential leadership play into a search for the cure for cancer? So indirectly, it can play an enormous role in that the president is ultimately in charge of the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees the National Institute of Health. And uh, in a separate study that we published a few years ago, uh, our group at Washington University, we showed that the NIH was behind greater than 95% of the basic research that led to any kind of a cure, but especially cancer cures, um, in the United States. And so the president does have the ability, and every now and then you'll see um, a particular administration where support for uh, NIH and other federal research instruments will wane, and we're in one of those right now. I was wondering how it's playing out with President Trump. The Every budget that he has proposed, as I understand it, has roughly a 20 to 25 percent cut in NIH funding. Um, that is That would be untenable. That would basically destroy the entire, not just NIH, but the university systems. Um, because most of the NIH budget is actually spent, given to universities to do what turns out to be, and every federal study has shown, the, no, the most highly efficient federal dollars are actually those that are invested in the NIH. They return, I think every dollar invested in NIH returns like a $1.90 in economic benefit. So, and in part of that's through these kind of cures. Is that usual for a Repub- Republican president? No. Actually, Republican presidents have often been uh, strong supporters. Uh, oftentimes, they would cut the budgets. But here, you just have you know, priorities that are the, the motivation for which are, are not, aren't clear to me. What do you hope readers take away from all of this? Well, again, I think the key is that science needs to be approachable. Too often you'll tell someone at a cocktail party that you're a scientist and they will find every excuse possible to get away from you. Um, and we need to make sure that, they, that, that the general public understands, and that's why I've written these books, that these, it's a very approachable subject that was created by real people. Um, and people that aren't super smart or super motivated, sometimes they just got lucky or sometimes they had obsessive compulsive personalities or you know, stumbled into the right thing and were at the right place. And so that's really the goal of all of this. It definitely left me with a hopeful feeling in spite of all the challenges behind and ahead. And hopefully yeah. soon the beginning of the end book can be written, uh, if not by me, then by somebody else and we will have um, rid ourselves of the scourge of cancer. Well, do you have another book in the works after this one? I'm actually finishing up a book actually of local interest, which is the history of St. Louis in terms of innovation. It turns out that whether it's scientific innovations, medical innovations, or business innovations, um, the local geography that we're in is unbelievably impactful. Um, I had, Mm -hmm. being someone who's only lived here for a few years, I really had no idea. And so it's fun. I'm in the process of uh, finishing that up, and and it'll be interesting. When do you expect it to come out? We'll see. (laughs) Well, I want to thank uh, author and cancer researcher Michael Kinch, professor and vice chancellor at Washington University, for joining us today. His latest book is The End of the Beginning, Cancer, Immunity, and the Future of a Cure. Professor Kinch, great to talk with you. Thanks, Evie.